Hello, and welcome to a special podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we'll be looking at Israel and the turmoil in the Arab world. And I am joined today to discuss this topic by Professor Itamar Rabinovich, Israel's former ambassador in Washington and chief negotiator with Syria. He's the president of the Israel Institute and a member of Hoover's working group on Islamism. Professor Rabinovich, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, there are so many places in the Middle East and so, so many trends that are relevant to Israel's security environment. It can be difficult to know where to start, but let, let's take one of the biggest ones first, which is the Arab Spring. Benjamin Netanyahu, the, the Israeli prime minister, back in the 1990s, makes an argument that in the next decade starts to gain a lot of traction in the West and especially in the United States, that the real problem with the Middle East is that apart from Israel, there is a drought of democracy. They are surrounded by non-consensual governments. Then a few years ago, the Arab Spring comes along and far from being heartened, Netanyahu is is positively gloomy, pessimistic about what may follow. So the question there is what what changed? Had Netanyahu come to rethink his core position or was it that what he saw emerging from the Arab Spring didn't meet his definition of democracy? Uh, this and uh, the difference between uh, long-term uh, considerations and immediate con- concerns or, or constraints or the difference between the theoretical and, and the practical. So uh, if, if you were to ask the same question of Netanyahu, he probably would have begun by saying, well, you use the term Arab Spring, nobody uses it now anymore, because unfortunately the Arab Spring became uh, the, uh, the winter of, of the Arab discontent, uh, or we, we use the term turmoil or unraveling in, in, in the series that uh, uh, we are talking about. So uh, he would say two things. One is, I saw uh, the hollowness of uh, the hoped-for or apparent transition to democracy, and indeed uh, it, it did not uh, succeed. And secondly, um, he said, as the Prime Minister of Israel, I, I can't just deal with the theoretical or ideological considerations. I have to think about immediate concerns, and my immediate concerns were the peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan that have become mainstays of uh, Israel's national security, and I saw the danger to, to them or the threat to them, and hence my, uh, my somewhat ambiguous response to what then was the Arab Spring. Okay, let's talk about that relationship with Egypt. The, the Israeli relationship with Egypt was, as you've noted, deeply significant in that for the first time, really, Israel had a breakthrough with another state in the region. It wasn't relying on some dispossessed minority to check pan-Arabic or Islamist ambitions. It, it had reached a, a modus vivendi with another major state. and it was, it was a cold peace, but in that part of the world, you'll take genuine peace at any temperature. And then Hosni Mubarak is forced from office. Mohammed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood take power, and this is cause for alarm in Israel. Was Morsi as bad as the Israelis feared, and what has been the Israeli reaction to the regime really driven by the Egyptian military that has followed him? Well, Morsi's record was not, was not so bad, and actually during uh, 
the the military operation that that we had in in Gaza at the, at the time in response to rockets being fired out of Gaza to the south of Israel, uh, he he behaved in a restrained fashion and because of his own interests, had actually helped negotiate an end to that to that operation. So if you want to take the the narrow even the tunnel view of it, uh, uh, he behaved well, but. Uh, of course, uh, he did not want to deal with Israel directly. He relegated it to his military because uh, by his own conviction as a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, he cannot accept either Jewish or Christian sovereignty um, in a land that, uh, that was Muslim. And since uh, what now is Israel used to be in past uh, centuries, uh, after the seventh century uh, Muslim land, um, he is a fundamentalist uh, Muslim uh, brother, uh, cannot accept the legitimacy of, of Israel. But obviously, Muslim rulers and politicians do have pragmatic constraints. And so his practical position was, I would not have made that peace, but I've inherited it, and at least for now I have to keep it. So if you look at that, record specifically or narrowly for that year, it wasn't so bad. If you ask yourself, is this a way to, to continue to cultivate a, a very delicate relationship by behaving relatively well, by sending the message that it's uh, something illegitimate, the answer, of course, is, is no. Israel feels much more secure now with uh, the regime of Sisi, who is a uh, a throwback to the days of uh, Mubarak or Nasser, he's a military man. Egypt is a thinly veiled uh, military dictatorship now. Um, and unfortunately, we are, we are back to that. I say unfortunately because if you, if you were to have a, a, a theoretical discussion with Netanyahu, another important conservative Israeli spokesperson, Nathan Sharansky, whose book on democracy we are all told had an impact on uh, President George W. Bush uh, when, they, when they met in, uh, in Colorado a few years ago and uh, affected Bush's own view of democracy in the Middle East. They would tell you, in theory, yes, ideally, yes. If, uh, our only hope for a stable peace uh, remains a democratic Arab world or Middle East. But this is a far cry from what can be expected in the near future. Let's talk about Iran, and it's important to note, uh, as you observe in your piece for Hoover, how the dynamics in the region, particularly where Iran is concerned, change as a result of the war with Iraq. Explain that. Uh, you mean the U.S. war with Iraq? There was also a, a very long uh, Iranian-Iraqi war right, in the United right. States that, that by now people forget. So you. Uh, you mean the American invasion of Iraq, the toppling of, of Saddam? Yes. Uh, so what, what happened was that, that Saddam, um, Saddam was a bulwark against uh, Iranian expansion, both physically and, uh, let's say, symbolically. Uh, he held the line. This is also why in the 1980s, the, uh, uh, in the days of the Reagan and Bush administrations, there, there were some dealings between the United States and, and Saddam Hussein, because he was seen as a bulwark against uh, Iran. That bulwark was removed by the toppling of, of Saddam, 
and the failure to, to erect a, uh, uh, a stable uh, regime against it. And also, here you come to one of the paradoxes of transition or apparent transition to, to democracy, which, among other things, is the rule of the majority. The majority in Iraq is uh, the Shia. 60% of the population are uh, Shia Arabs, as this, distinct from 20% uh, Sunni Arabs and 20% Sunni Kurds, who are not, who are not Arabs. And for, for centuries, the smaller Sunni group was in, in control, and the invasion of 2003 toppled them, not just Saddam, but uh, the whole ruling elite, and power is now in Shia hands. So Iran has the second advantage of not just having the bulwark removed, but having actually a Shia ally or even a dependent a Shia ally in, in Iraq. It has, from Iraq, direct access to Syria. From Syria, it has direct access to, to Lebanon. And uh, it clearly has expanded towards the Mediterranean. Uh, this may sound uh, maybe grandiose, but uh, the Iranians do think in grandiose terms. This is a country of more than 80 million with a very sophisticated uh, elite and, uh, of course, an imperial tradition of the Persian empires, and their ambitions run high. And in terms of those ambitions, there's actually a passage from your piece for Hoover, and you're here not talking just about Iran but the region as a whole, and you write – Quote, since January 2009, the Obama administration has conducted a Middle East policy predicated on the assumption that statecraft could be implemented effectively without force. That certainly bears on Iran. Professor Rabinovich, is that assumption warranted? Uh, no, you know, you, uh, you, you, I think uh, you're not too far from from work. I'm not sure whether Ken Waltz was in, in Stanford in Berkeley, but he wrote this classic called Force and Statecraft, which is an icon of uh, the study of international relations and explained very persuasively that you cannot have statecraft without force. And what the Obama administration, unfortunately, is, is broadcasting in the Middle East and in other parts of the world is that it, it hopes to achieve much with uh, soft power. And, and of course, if, uh, if you act in a world where you have uh, Putins and, uh, and Ayatollahs, that doesn't quite work. So another topic that certainly bears on both Iran and Israel, as you mentioned earlier, is Syria in the midst of a civil war. And it's a mistake, you note, to think of Israeli opinion as uniform in regards to what's going on there. There's a segment of Israeli opinion that thinks that keeping Bashar al-Assad in power may be the least unpalatable option there and another that thinks that they'd be better off if he was gone. What, what are the arguments there? What are the major points on which those two sides disagree? Uh, what is common to both, uh, to both these outlooks is that both are hypothetical because as a matter of fact, Israel has very little influence over the course of events in uh, Syria. And in that regard, it, it is like most of the rest of the world. But, um, you know, we are a neighboring state. Uh, we are a powerful military. We could conceivably uh, intervene, but given the, the nature of politics in the Middle East and our relations with Arab neighbors, Israeli intervention, let's say, on the side of the opposition, uh, would have uh, actually... Uh, jeopardize the opposition or, or condemn the opposition as collaborationists. So in practice, 
we have very limited influence over the course of events in, in Syria. But as Israelis debate, um, debate the issue, uh, there are those who argue that, uh, as I believe I, I, uh, I put it or quote uh, the late uh, uh, Ariel Sharon, uh, who said to George W. Bush at the time uh, about Bashar al-Assad, he's the devil we know. Let's say we know he's a devil, but we know him, we, we know how to get along with him, he knows the, he knows the game, and uh, we can live with him. And the alternative to him would be some kind of an Islamist uh, power. We now know that uh, there are many Islamist groups in Syria. Several of them are jihadi, connected to, to Al-Qaeda. Some of them have actually established Islamist uh, uh, or radical Islamist uh, rule in, in those parts of Syria that they, they control. And uh, the argument among Israelis is uh, who is better or who is worse from an Israeli point of view. And uh, my own view is that um, the lesser of two evils is, is for Assad to go. Assad at this point is not an independent actor, he is an Iranian puppet. If he stays in power, at least in large part of Syria, if not in the whole of Syria, um, there would be an arc of Iranian influence stretching from Iran through Syria to Lebanon, to Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, maybe to parts of Gaza, and that is more dangerous uh, to Israeli national security than the alternative. In the wake of the Syrian regime's use of chemical weapons last year, you had the Obama administration clearly hesitant to enforce this red line it had drawn where it pledged to intervene in that kind of scenario. And at a moment when the White House looked unsure of what to do next, Vladimir Putin sweeps in to manage a deal in which the Syrians will supposedly get rid of their chemical stockpiles. In the short term, it takes the pressure off the U.S. to act. In the long term, what are the ramifications for the region? It, uh, it of course, um, first of all, it enhances the, the stature of Putin and, and Russia, and this was well before Ukraine. Uh, so what some of us argued at the time, that Putin has far-reaching ambitions in the Middle East and this would, would play into his hands, uh, were unfortunately vindicated by his conduct subsequently in, in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, second, the message was well understood in, in the Middle East that you, you were kind enough to say that the administration was hesitant to use a force. It obviously uh, did not want to use force and went to Congress, which is a far-reaching step in terms of uh, call it American uh, constitutional uh, arrangements uh, to, to give up executive privilege and to ask Congress uh, to endorse a limited military uh, action, not a full-fledged war. So if the Iranians looked at that and asked themselves, are we in real danger of an American strike, the, the answer they must have given to themselves was, no, we are not. Um, and the Saudis asked themselves, can we rely on U.S. intervention in the event that we need it against domestic or external enemies? The answer they gave to themselves was no. And they were so angry that they gave up membership in the Security Council as a message to America and, and the world. And finally, I'm not sure that uh, the agreement is actually implemented to, to the letter. I would suspect that uh, uh, Assad is hiding 
part of his uh, chemical arsenal, and that would be in character. Final question. We can't talk about Israel without talking about the situation with the Palestinians. The Obama administration, though they haven't always had the warmest relationship with Prime Minister Netanyahu, has has been engaged in this sustained campaign to get a deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians, find some level of accommodation. Uh, how do you rate the prospects for that now as opposed to at various times in the in the recent past? Well, we now have much more modest expectations. Uh, I say we, the, it's the universal we. Um, I, mean, I think Secretary Kerry himself began with ambitiously with an effort to try to resolve the conflict, and it's gradually uh, reduced uh, or lowered his sights. At this point, uh, the effort is to prevent a collapse, to get a renewal or extension for another nine months. And uh, if that happens, that, that would be a tactical achievement. The prospects for the current Israeli and Palestinian leadership uh, under the aegis of, uh, of the current U.S. administration uh, to achieve the kind of breakthrough that would enable an endgame in this uh, conflict is limited. The prospect of extending the negotiation uh, is much better because no one has a real interest in their collapse. All right. My guest has been Professor Itamar Rabinovich, Israel's former ambassador in Washington and chief negotiator with Syria, president of the Israel Institute and a member of Hoover's working group on Islamism. Professor Rabinovich, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.